13, please. I want to give you another one of these lessons from uh, life. In this case, uh, the life of uh, God's servant Abraham. It's a very short story. comes out of that uh, portion of Scripture that we don't read very much, the clean part of our Bible. And I want to uh, begin right in the beginning of the story. Verse 5, chapter 13, verse 5. Now Lot, who went with Abram also, had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, and the Canaanite and the Perizzite, we're dwelling in the land. It's a story about conflict. Uh, it's my experience that all relationships lead to conflict. Doesn't make any difference who you are, what your background is, how mature you are. They're just those times when we have have difficulty getting along. There's no marriage. There's no family. There's no partnership. No friendship. No body of Christians that doesn't, from time to time, have uh, Contention, and sometimes that contention degenerates into tooth and claw. Some of you may be familiar with Eugene Fields' uh, children's poem. I ran across it uh, again in Bennett's Book of Virtues uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I had almost forgotten it. Uh, it's about the gingham dog and the calico cat. One part of it goes like this. The gingham dog and the calico cat wallowed this way and tumbled that, Employing every tooth and claw in the awfulest fight you ever saw. Next morning, when the two had sat, where the two had sat, they found no trace of dog or cat. And some folks think unto this day that burglars stole that pair away. But the truth about the cat and pup is this, they ate each other up. Or to put it in Paul's words, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out. Or you'll consume each other. That's Paul's version of the gingham dog and the calico cat. We've got to learn to get along with each other. Conflict is inevitable. We have to learn how to manage it, how to deal with it. So much depends on it. Our love for one another is dependent on it. We've got to learn how to love each other well. Our love for God is dependent upon it. Jesus said, if you have something against your brother, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go and be reconciled to your to your brother. And oddly enough, our love for the non-Christian world is dependent upon it because Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the marks of people who are authentically Christian is that they've learned how to get along with each other. The world is uh, underwhelmed by our church programs, but they always sit up and take notice when they see Christians relating to one another in ways that are impossible for them to, to relate. A lot of things are dependent. We, we've just got to learn how to get along. So the question is, how do we, um, how do we go about doing that? Well, this, this is one of the most helpful stories I've ever found, I think, on conflict uh, resolution. 
The problem actually began years uh, before. I tell you this simply to know that, uh, you know, so that you, we all will know that, that fault is never merely on one side. Each party has something to bring to the table. The problem actually began with Abraham's big fib. Years before, he and Sarah worked out a deal that wherever they went, she would say that Abram was her brother. Now, that was a a half-truth. She was his half-sister, but it still was a big lie. They were husband and wife. The reason Abram did that is because Sarah was was a beautiful woman, just incredibly attractive. And he knew that anywhere he went, someone would covet her and kill him. That's the way things were done in those days. You wanted somebody's wife, you'd kill Killed her husband, that immediately made her, made her a widow, and so you could marry her. Abraham lived in a cold, brutal world. So they concocted this lie. This was their deceit. This was Abram's ace in the hole, if I can put it that way. This was his alternative to faith. Whenever he didn't think God was going to come through, he could pull this one out. She, she's my sister. Now, Abraham went down into Egypt with that lie, and as you know, it almost cost him his life. You don't lie to the Pharaoh of Egypt, but uh, God, whose business it is to undo our foolishness, stepped in and averted the tragedy, and, and Abraham was permitted to leave Egypt along with his wife. God preserved the seed. You know, the whole book of Genesis is, is one event after another in which God had to undo the evil doing of the people that were part of the seed, that carried the seed. You know, Abraham jeopardized the seed that was to save the world. It was implanted in Sarah. Our Lord, he traced his genealogy back to Sarah. Now, God's whole purpose to save the world was almost subverted in Egypt. Abraham almost lied it away, but God set the situation right. And in one of those curious turns of history, Abraham left the land exceedingly wealthy. Filthy rich. And filthy is exactly the right term because it was dirty money. It was the dowry that the Pharaoh had given to him because of the lie that he had told. And it was that wealth that threw Abram and Lot into conflict. The herds were too vast. The land wouldn't contain them. The land failed Abraham again. Once before it had failed him through famine. Now it failed him because there wasn't enough of it. And the, the herdsmen were in, in conflict with one another. They're overgrazing the land. There wasn't a place to place to graze their flocks, and so they began to squabble, quarrel, fight, and yell, and scream at each other. Sir Rudolph Bing, who was for years the general manager of the New New York Metropolitan Opera, uh, was once engaged in a series of contract negotiations with the actors uh, with the. Uh, uh, opera union, one of the trade unions at the opera. And at one session where things got out of hand, he leaned across the table toward the trade union lawyer. And he said, I'm awfully sorry. He said, I didn't get that. W- w- would you mind screaming it again? He said. And so often that's the way we resolve our conflicts, just by squaring off, going at it face to face, yelling at one another, losing our tempers losing control, doing things that are ugly and unacceptable and regrettable and that make us so ashamed after the fact. There's uh, 
There's a better way. Genesis 13, the, the first four verses of chapter 13, trace Abram's pilgrimage by stages as he journeyed from Egypt through, through, through the Negev and, and back to Bethel. It's more than a journey through, through space. It was a journey back in time. The text says that he went back to the place where he'd worshipped God in the beginning. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He and his wife and all that belonged to him and, and Lot with him. Lot, as you know, was his nephew. Uh, the son of his dead brother. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold, and he went on his journeys from the Gav as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. There are two things that characterized Abram's life in the land, a tent and an altar. Wherever he went, he pitched his tent, and he put together an altar, and he worshipped God there. The tent spoke of his pilgrim status. This world was not his home. He was just passing through. There was no tent in Egypt. He was living in the big city. There was no altar in Egypt, no worship, no revelation, no light, no sense of God's uh, presence. When he got back to Bethel, he got back to God. He rebuilt his altar. He pitched his tent, resumed his pilgrim status, began to worship God, began to listen to what God had to say. It's a good thing he did because... He needed all of God in order to face the trouble that was ahead. Because God's way of solving problems requires more than human wisdom, more than human strength, more than human ability. It's a superhuman effort. It requires the presence of God. In that place, Abram gained new perspective, though he... He learned there that God may ask us to do things that look dangerous. And yet, he's promised eternal protection and there's no reason to doubt his word. Our safety never depends on our efforts to be safe. Our safety is dependent upon our efforts to stay in the center of God's will. That's the safest place on the face of the earth. And that's what Abram had to learn, to just be content with God, and with God alone. Now, the problem, as I said, was too much of a good thing. Uh, Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. And Sarah's dowry was what uh, caused the problem. So Abraham himself contributed something to the problem, but he contributed magnificently to to the solution. He appealed uh, to his nephew, verse 8. Abraham said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brothers. Remember the passage that I quoted earlier from Matthew. If you're offering your, your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. This is my brother. Can't afford to be separated from him in the family. Have to have to work it out some way. This is my brother. Another interesting thing about this text, uh, you know, there's almost a throwaway line here, the last part of verse 7, 7b. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite 
were dwelling there in the land. It's an interesting phrase. I thought about it that, that a long time. It could be that Moses, the author of Genesis, is simply saying that the Canaanites were also competing for, for grazing rights. Let's put more pressure on the land. That may be what Moses had in mind, but I think there may be something else. I think Abram was concerned about the Canaanites and the way he and Lot resolved their problems. I said earlier, people know there's something different about us if we settle our differences in a way that they're unable to settle theirs, if there's the the marks of, of grace about us. That's what makes people sit up and take notice. And I, and I think God loved Canaanites. You know, we talk about these uh, Canaanites as, as though they're irredeemable, but Abram was a missionary to the Canaanites. Do you realize that? God took Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and sent him to Canaan, the darkest place on the face of the earth, because God loved Canaanites. And it was Abram's responsibility to be salt and light, to be a source of revelation and truth to, to these people that we just think of as dirty old men and women. God cared about them. He loved them as much as he loved us, loves us. And so it's absolutely essential that Abraham and Lot settle their differences because the Canaanites were looking on. You see what he's saying? Do you understand? So right here in this text, you have two reasons, really, for settling any differences you have with someone else in this congregation or within the family of God. One, because that's your brother, your sister. It's part of the family. It's a family matter. have to settle it. And also because of the message that we send to the outside world, that we have something that enables us to resolve our conflicts. We We can get along with one another. Now, I spent the last few uh, months actually reading books on conflict resolution. I, I told you that, you know, this is a series on my sin, and, and I, I, you know, I'm not very good at this. I, I'm, I'm trying to get better. I'm working at it. So I've been doing a lot of reading as well as searching the Scriptures. And I found some real help from some of the material that's out there from behavioral science, uh, scientists and others that have done research in this area. I think what it is, to some extent, is, is an elaboration of what Paul described as allowing your speech to be seasoned with salt, serving up your conversations like a savory meal, tasty, right? scrumptious. And that's all it is. Now, they're not right about everything, but, but there's truth here. It struck me, too, that, that many of the virtues that they commend are simply Christian virtues. They're the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, sensitivity, willingness to look at, at one's own problems and, and the way we contribute uh, to an issue. As James says, the wisdom is from above. It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, full of mercy, easy to be entreated. It's meek and non-defensive. Most of the reading that I've done really centers around around virtue. So to that extent, as the scriptures say, sometimes the sons of this world are wiser than the sons of light. They have insight that we may not have. Now, my way of, of reading, I, you know, I, this is the way my mind works, is that I read a lot, I take notes, and then I try to take this mass of material that I'm reading and distill it into one sheet of paper, if I possibly can. 
It's sort of like concentrated orange juice. You squeeze it down real tight, and then you can add water to it later. But what I did is sat down, and I took one eight and a half by 11 sheet. I just started working on my word processor. And I just compressed everything into one page. Now, I want to read what I came up with. Now, this is not what the sermon is about. But I want to share with you some of the things that, that I'm learning. This is the counsel of those who work in this field, uh, conflict management, conflict resolution. The first step is always to objectify the problem. Before we say anything or do anything, we should take time out to analyze the conflict and identify the conflicting issue to the point where it can be stated succinctly and clearly in one precise word or phrase. So you got a problem with someone, so you back off before you say anything, before you do anything. You spend some time by yourself. You take time out and you ask yourself, what is the problem? And then you try to state it as succinctly and precisely as you can. The problem is tidiness. You have a spouse that never picks up his socks or her socks or whatever. What's the problem here? Well, the problem is not him. The problem is not her. The problem is tidiness, neatness. What's the problem with Abraham and Lot? Overgrazing. It wasn't those rasty herdsmen. It was the fact that there wasn't enough room in the land. The problem is blank. And you try to put it in one word or one sentence, one succinct statement. Precise statement. Secondly, the next step is to engage. Problems don't go away by themselves. They have to be dealt with. I, personally, I've never found a problem that just vanishes. It just goes away. It just keep, I just keep finding it on another front. Somewhere along the line. They have to be resolved. We should select a suitable time to discuss the problem. The alternative is to never get around to it or get around to it all the time, which is nagging. The worst thing in the world is to keep bringing up the problem every day. You need to set aside a time. First objectify the problem, decide what the issue is, not the person, the problem, and then you, you set a time. It's time for everything. Even problem solving. Carolyn and I do a lot of ours. Friday noon, we go out to lunch and uh, go out to a restaurant somewhere. When we were poor, we'd go to McDonald's or someplace inexpensive, and and we we try to talk through the issues that concerned us, our, our children, our ministry, our marriage. Some factors retard problem solving. Hunger. Uh, emotional exhaustion, physical exhaustion, time limits, deadlines. In some cases, it's good to postpone problem solving until a more suitable time. Worst time to try to solve a problem is when you're in the middle of an argument. Just call time out and set another time. Later is not good enough. Set a specific time. Tomorrow at 2 o'clock, tomorrow at 6, tomorrow morning at breakfast. Third, attack the problem and not the person. Relationships matter. They matter more than anything else. The goal is to solve the problem without damaging the relationship. To do so, it's necessary to focus on the issue rather than blame, ridicule, or attack. The problem is neatness. Not that your turkey of a husband will not, never will pick up his socks or never will clean up his fly tying equipment or whatever. When we start on this track, you always, you, 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 we're blaming, we're condemning, and you don't get anywhere. You deal with the problem. The problem is neatness. 
comes the differing standard of tidiness. We should try to understand what the other person is feeling. Feelings have dignity and legitimacy on their own. The best thing to do with feelings is to acknowledge them. I feel threatened when that happens. It frightens me. I feel angry when such and such a thing happens. It's all right. See, feelings are okay. The best thing to do with feelings is simply to acknowledge them. We should listen carefully to one another and try to understand each other's point of view. We should listen without seeking advantage, <coughs> pardon me, without looking for weak spots, without making comparisons, without condemnation, without giving a quick fix, without trying to win. It's not, that's not the purpose. People writing in this area talk about zero-sum solutions. In other words, there are solutions where somebody wins and somebody loses. You want to try to avoid that if you can. Because inevitably, underlying the problem is a whole set of interests and feelings that we may not be aware of. So we need to take into consideration how a person feels about an event, not just the event itself. Once there is an understanding of one's feelings and interests, we can identify alternate uh, solutions that benefit both parties. This is a time for brainstorming. Each should think of as many solutions to the problem as possible. The greater the number of solutions, the greater the number of good alternatives arise. We can then decide on a mutually acceptable solution. You sit down, talk through the issues. Here's one way to resolve it. Here's another way to resolve it. Here's another way to resolve it. You recognize there's a whole bevy of interest down into the surface, down in our hearts that we both want to see met. And so we try to find a solution that is mutually uh, workable for each, for each person, mutually satisfying. And if new behaviors are required, we should implement them for ourselves. The worst thing we can try to do is change somebody else. The only person you can change is yourself. I find these things helpful. You know, I can imagine Abraham and Lot getting together. And, you know, there's nothing in the scripture that indicates this, but I just dreamed up this conversation this last week. Abraham says to Lot, Abraham says to Lot, Lot, my friend, we, we've got a problem here. The problem is there isn't enough land to go around. Your herds are too large. My herds are too large. It's and it bothers me because my, our relationship is important. I see our herdsmen quarreling. I see us getting upset with each other. Our relationship is so important. I, I, we've just got to talk about this. It's hard for me. I, I don't want to do anything that, that, that inhibits our love for each other. But I believe our love would be enhanced if we could just solve this problem. Let's sit down and side by side and, 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 and talk this thing through. Focus on the issue. What can we do about this problem of overgrazing? See, now, that's well and good, and it works off and on when we work it. But what do you do at those times when it doesn't work? When when people are intransigent, when they don't want to change, when they don't understand your feelings, when they don't want to hear what you have to say, when when they don't listen to you, when they don't care how you feel. When they themselves are the problem, what, what, what do you do in, in those circumstances? Well, you see, here's where there is about authentic Christianity that more than quality that eludes the world. 
Jesus said on one occasion, what do you do more than others? That's the important thing. Even the pagans, he says, can sometimes get along with each other. What do you do more than they do? There is that over and above, more than quality about about authentic, gracious Christianity, the, the kind of faith that that an understanding of, of grace produces. And that's what you see in Abrams, what I call the magnanimity of, of grace. Uh, look at verses 9 through 13. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go down to Zor. Zor was an oasis near near Egypt. Actually in Egypt. So Lot chose for himself. It's a very significant phrase. He chose for himself. All the valley of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward. Then they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled in the cities of the valley. And and here the, the notion behind the verb is one of progress. He progressively moved his tents into Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and and sinners against against the Lord. You understand what's going on here? This is the biggest giveaway in history. Abram possessed the land. He had a God-given title to the land of Canaan. He was the older man. He was the patriarch. He could have demanded that Lot get lost. Go find your own place, he said. But he didn't do that. You see what he did? He gave up his right to possess the land. God had guaranteed his integrity in there. You go back and read Genesis 12. It's part of the Abrahamic covenant. Bring you to the land. I'm going to show you. I give it to you. Land that extended from from the Euphrates to the river of of Egypt. A huge piece of real estate that was God's. God's, That was Abram's. And Abram's alone. This wonderful, magnanimous, humble old man took Lot up on a promontory and he said, all right, Lot, you choose. What do you want? Which portion of the land do you want? And Lot chose for himself. He gave up the altar of Abraham and the grace of God for the grass of Sodom. It's a beautiful spot. Oh, it looked like an oasis. It was all irrigated down there in the circle of the Jordan. Jackson just got back there. He knows what it looks like today. It's just there in the bush in sight. But back then, it was a beautiful spot. Lot chose for himself. Beautiful pastoral scene, but underneath was all this vice, ugliness, and rebellion against against God that eventually seduced Lot, dragged him into the city, destroyed his family, destroyed him in the end. Never recovered. You see, Lot traded grace for grass. Abram let God choose, and he got everything. Got the whole land back and heaven thrown in. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Lift up your eyes from where you are 
And look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I'll give to you and your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So that if anyone could count the dust then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land for I'm giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron where he built an altar to the Lord. See, after Lot's claim came God's grant. It's all yours. Now go out and possess it. And this notion of walking through the land is uh, sounds like, well, we don't know for sure, but it sounds like some kind of ancient rite for taking possession of a piece of real estate. You, every place you put the sole of your foot, that, that's yours. And Abraham first experienced it, experienced it in Panorama, and then he walked through the whole length and breadth of the land, and he claimed it. It was his. And, and that's the way it is with God. We give away our rights, and he, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he gives. You never lose anything by giving up. See, that's the more than quality that the world cannot approximate. They can't even come close. The oldest paradox in the world, and the one that's most meaningful, is that you find yourself by losing yourself. You lose yourself by finding yourself. You try to hang on to your rights, and you lose everything. You give it up. You get the whole world in heaven thrown in. That's what Jesus meant when he said, the meek shall inherit the earth. The non-defensive. Those that don't insist on their rights. Oh, you have rights. Please understand. You do. Our Constitution guarantees it, but it guarantees it because uh, Scripture makes it very clear that we have certain inalienable rights. Paul defends those rights in, in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, but we also have the right to give up our rights. And sometimes insisting on our right is wrong. We don't have to always give up our rights. It's never right for somebody to batter you, to abuse you emotionally or, or physically. That's never right. You don't have to put up with that. Nor is it right to give up some truth, some principle, the wisdom from above is first pure, James says, then peaceable. We do not live by the creed, peace at all costs. We live by the creed of purity at all costs, purity of truth. But there are those times, you know, just in the rough and tumble of life, just the roughage of it, in and out stuff that we do with all the time. You get into a conflict with somebody and you're trying to resolve it. You can't work it out. Before push comes to shove, you give up your rights. See? Because it's more important to retain the relationship than it is to get the thing that you're after. Relationships, love for people comes first. But not to worry. If we lose ourselves, we won't lose out. G.K. Chesterton observed that humility is like digging into the earth. At some point, we start back up. Those who humble themselves, Peter says, will be exalted. It's in giving that we receive. It's in dying that we live. You know what keeps me from giving in and giving up? It's fear. It's fear. I won't get what's rightfully mine. There's the event. The, conf- the conflicting event, whatever it might be. And, and the response to that is, is fear. And the response to fear is one of three things. We have three alternatives, either to flee or to fight or to act in faith. 
That's the third way. Either flee or fight or act in faith. Abraham acted in faith, gave up his rights to the land. And God gave him everything. George MacDonald, uh, you know, he's my one of my patron saints, and I <clears throat> came across a quote of his some time ago that I found very helpful. He said, some of us stay trouble from morning to night as though he does not care for the sparrow. We bought a, a bird feeder the other day and filled it full of thistle seed, hung it in our backyard, and, man, we've got more birds than you could believe out there. we got little LBBs, they call them little brown birds, and we've got <laughs> pine siskins, and we've, we've got um, gold finches, and we've got house finches, and... We just we got birds. I mean, it's it's like an old Hitchcock movie. We got them all over the place. You know? And I I look at those birds, and I'm always reminded of our Lord's statement about seeing the sparrows fall. Little old dinky birds. God sees them, and God cares. And if He cares for sparrows, He certainly cares for us. Some of us stay trouble from morning to night as though he does not care for the sparrow. And some of us believe bad things about him about him as though he does not care for us. Things impossible for any person who knows Jesus to believe. If you know who Jesus is, you can't distrust him. You can't distrust his heart. You know he cares. You know he knows your situation. That's what sets you free. Give up some right that you have, something that you would grasp, something that you would cling to at the cost of the relationship. You see, you can give it up because he cares. I mentioned a, a few weeks ago uh, this little poem. I, I have no idea who wrote it. it. Said the robin to the sparrow, "I would really like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so." Said the sparrow to the robin, "Oh, I think that it must be." That they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Let's pray. Father, deliver us from that terrible need that we have. To have things our way. To work out every problem so that our needs are met. To want to be understood and listened to. Catered to. Pampered. Cared for ministered to. And uh, help us, Lord, uh, as, as we confront these difficulties we have with one another to, to acknowledge the problem and to deal with it in the same way in, in which you dealt with the problem of, of human sin, that incredible self-humiliation um, to give up your rights as the holy beloved one of, of the Father, exalted in all of your glory, and to come to earth and to live as a common human being and to lower yourself to be a slave and then eventually to die, to give up that greatest of all gifts, life itself for us. When Paul tells us, to seek not our own interests, but the things of others. We need to remember that you've shown us the way. You are the example par excellence. Such humility, the humility of God is incredible. May we possess it.
Make it true of us, Lord, that uh, that loving becomes much more important than giving and getting. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.